Well, as we prepare to take in the Lord's table as a part of our service today, let me ask if you'll turn with me to Lamentations chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. Obviously, we're continuing our study in the book of Lamentations, and also we're preparing for the ordinance of the Lord's table to take of the bread and the cup. And this particular passage helps us to orient our thoughts as we prepare for this ordinance. You see, we looked at Lamentations chapter 2 and we saw these verses in an overview fashion when we were in this passage a number of weeks ago. And and what we saw in our study is that here in Lamentations chapter 2, especially at the end of this chapter, the, the prophet is warning the people. They are a people under judgment. They are a people opposed by God. And here the prophet is warning them, specifically the prophet is warning them to repent. If they will repent and turn away from their sin and turn toward God, it won't eliminate the punishment, but it will certainly lessen the impact of it. And today I want to jump back in specifically to these brief verses here and dig a little deeper And as we do, what we'll see is not only a call to repentance, but in these verses we learn something about the character of true repentance. Look with me at Lamentations chapter 2, and I'll read verses 17 through 19. The Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His word which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise. Cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. In these verses, the prophet is calling the people to repent. To turn back to the Lord. But not only is He calling on the people to repent, He's providing essentially a description of what this repentance is to look like. This is crucial for us because it gets our minds tracking on this idea of biblical repentance. And what true repentance is. Essentially, if we wanted to summarize it and define it in its simplest terms, biblical repentance is simply this. It is a change to your life stemming from a change in your thinking. Repentance is a change to your life that comes from a change in your thinking. That's what the biblical language of repentance teaches us about this subject. Part of the Part of the word groups that describe what repentance is, it has this idea of turning. 
Turning away from sin, turning unto God. There, there is a turn, a shift, a change that takes place with repentance. Additionally, uh, in the way that the Bible, especially the New Testament, describes repentance, we learned that this shift, this change, this turn, is the result of a change in our thinking, a renewal of the mind. The Greek word is metanoia. It's a change of the mind. It's a change in what you think. It's a change in how you process things. Specifically, it's a change in what you think and how you process things according to the Scriptures. Repentance is a change in direction in your life that, that it comes from a change in your convictions about the truth. That's where repentance comes from. As your life comes under the microscope of God's truth, as your, as your faulty thinking is confronted with the reality of God's truth, as your sinful ways are identified by the purity of the Scriptures, the Lord develops convictions within your heart about those things. You see the truth in a patterned way. You believe that truth. You start to develop life convictions about that truth. You change the way you think about things. And then that results in a change in your life. That's what repentance looks like. It's a change to your life stemming from a change in your thinking. And it's important for us to understand this because a failure to repent has disastrous results. If you're here today and you will not repent of your own self-righteousness, if you continue to hold on to this idea that you can be right with God on your own based on what you have done, or maybe you refuse to repent of your own self-will. You refuse to let go of the idea that, that you can run your life however you want, that you have that authority. If you're here today and you refuse to repent of that sinful rebellion to God and turn to Christ for the forgiveness of the gospel, the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life, then the Scriptures are clear. The Scriptures are clear that you will face an eternity in hell for your failure to repent and trust in Christ. But in addition to this need for repentance unto salvation, there continues to be a need for repentance unto sanctification in the life of the believer. Believer, if you're here today, and you fail to repent over areas of sin in your life that you see and you know it's there, but you will not repent of it, guess what it's going to do? It's going to hinder your communion, your relationship with the Lord. Ephesians 1.3 says that we have every blessing given to us in Christ Jesus. Every blessing in the heavenlies. And you say, it doesn't feel like it. Well, sometimes it doesn't feel like it because the Lord puts us through a trial, but sometimes it doesn't feel like it. We don't get the benefits of our relationship with the Lord because we refuse to repent. We refuse to turn away from those things the Lord has identified as dangerous to us as believers and turn to Him to receive those blessings. So a failure to repent on our part will hinder our walk, our communion with the Lord. Additionally, a failure to repent will shatter relationships with other people. 
Let me tell you what. You want to end up a lonely, bitter person, then you just refuse to forgive people and you refuse to seek forgiveness and repentance when you've sinned. That's the formula. You want, you want, to, you want to die bitter and lonely? Then just do that. If instead you'd rather benefit from the graces of the church and fellowship within the church and mutual love within the church, then you know what you do? You forgive and you seek forgiveness and you repent where it's necessary. A failure to repent will be a disaster for your relationships with other people. Additionally, a failure to repent will rob you of fruit. It will rob you of fruit in the Christian life. Say, what kind of fruit? All kinds of fruit. But start with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Are those fruits that you want to see in your life? Well, if you're unwilling to repent of sins that you see in your life, you cannot expect the Spirit to bless you with those fruits in your life. I think one in particular is joy. Why would the Lord give you joy if you're continuing to follow down a path of sin? Why, why, would, why would the Lord allow you to have the blessedness of joy and assurance and security if you're not repenting of those sins and running to Him? If He were to give you the full joy of salvation in the midst of your sins, why would you ever turn away from Him? So what does the Lord do? Sometimes He withholds that. He withholds that to, to drive you back to the truth, to drive you to repentance, to, to drive you to where you need to be, His grace. That's something of what was going on with King David. When he said to me, restore unto, or he said to the Lord, restore unto me the joy of salvation. Right? Did God take away his salvation? No, He did not. Was David in the fallout of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, was he experiencing the full joy of salvation? No. No. Why? Because he had to repent. The Lord wasn't giving, giving him joy in his sin. If the Lord, how unkind of that would, how unkind of the Lord would it be to give us joy in our sin, wouldn't it? If we had real, sustained peace and joy as we were engaging in all kinds of vile and dangerous sinful practices, we'd just keep doing it. But instead, the Lord will often remove that full joy of salvation and instead replace it with conviction of sin. Why? To drive us to where we need to be. And in all this, we see the need for repentance in an ongoing way in the Christian life. Christian life which began with repentance, it must continue in repentance. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan writer, and by the way, our book of the month this month is The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. It's available on our book table. And in that book, Watson says this, and it's succinct and perfect. Repentance is never out of season. That's it. That's it. Repentance is never out of season. And as Christians, we must make repentance a pattern spiritual discipline in our life. It's one thing to confess our sins. That's important. But merely acknowledging our sin without also abandoning that sin will be useless. I think commonly the temptation is just for us as Christians to get together and say, oh man, I sinned in this. We're all sinners. Woo, man, it's tough. And then just keep going on with it. 
Well, we should come and be honest and transparent about our sins, seek grace for those sins, but we shouldn't be satisfied and content to continue in them. So what do we need? We need not only the confession of sins, but we need the repentance of sin. In fact, from my perspective, one of the greatest hindrances in the Christian life is deficient repentance. Whether it's a failure to repent even though you know what repentance looks like or a deficient view of repentance. You have a a wrong view of repentance in your circumstances. It's one of the great roadblocks to growth in Christ. Some people have what you might call a superficial view of repentance. Our problem is not superficial. Our problem is in our hearts. Which is to say, that's just figurative language to say, at the deepest level of who you genuinely are, that's where the problem is. That's what it means to say the problem is at your heart. It's not superficial, it's deep. Which means superficial repentance is not going to solve anything. Superficial repentance is merely external. As one individual described it, it's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. (laughs) Doesn't solve the problem, does it? Often, superficial external repentance focuses only on practical measures without examining the heart issues. And look, there are certain practical measures we should take to avoid temptation. If, if, if one of your temptations, one of your issues is you're looking at things on the internet that, internet that you shouldn't be, then you know what you need to do? You need to cut off your access to that. You need to build in some accountability to that. If you have to, cut the cord and throw it out the window. But that's only a practical measure that's going to help you avoid temptation. That doesn't deal with the heart issue that's going on that leads to the sin. You know, if your issue is blowing up in anger, then look, you can count to ten before you respond or whatever. That might help prevent you from blowing up at somebody, which is good. I don't want you blowing up at people. But what is going on in your heart that keeps leading you to these outbursts of anger? We can't just deal with it on the surface. We have to get to the heart of the issue. Superficial repentance will not produce fruit. Additionally, some people confuse biblical repentance with embarrassment. As if, I sinned and I'm embarrassed about that sin. Or, I sinned, somebody else saw that sin and I'm really embarrassed of that now. Well, you know, we should be shameful over sin, but that's not repentance. Worldly sorrow motivated by prideful fear of man is not repentance. It's not repentance. If, if, if you're feeling sorrow and shame because, man, they're going to think less of me now. Well, look, God knows everything about you. Why are you so worried about what this person thinks of you in this circumstance? Or sometimes it's not really prideful fear of man so much as prideful self-disappointment. I did this. Man, I cannot believe that I did this. I'm better than that. Not really. Not really. Spirit within you is better than that. More powerful than that. But any kind of prideful embarrassments that's driving us to sorrowful feelings, that's not a replacement for repentance. 
Or some people mistake repentance for penance. Of course, the Catholic Church teaches their view of penance, where essentially you have to pay off what you've done. So many Our Fathers, so many Hail Marys, so many candles, acts of self-mutilation. These are all prescribed in the Catholic view of penance in such a way where you have to work off that sin to get back into good graces with God. Friend, that's not repentance. And yet, even as Protestants, we fall into a Catholic view of penance all the time. I see it all the time. I'll, you know, call somebody up. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. I haven't seen you at church in a while. What's going on? Yeah, you know what? I've really been battling this sin. Well, you need to get to church. Well, you know what? I, I really don't feel like I can go to the Lord right now. I've got to get my stuff together. I've got to get my act together. I've got to fix this, and then I'll come back to the Lord. So you have to pay it off and work your way back to God. That's what you're going to try. Let me tell you what, that's going to get too deeper and deeper into sin and despair. See, penance says, I'll work my way back into God's good graces. Repentance says, I've got to run back to God for His grace. Really, again, this idea of penance is just another form of pride. It's another form of self-reliance. I got myself into this mess. I'll get it out. I'll get myself out. You know, I always land on my feet. I'll figure it out. Friend, for your salvation and for your ongoing walk with the Lord, there is nothing that you can do to deal with sin on your own. There's absolutely nothing whatsoever. I love one of our hymns in our hymn book, uh, hymn 405, it's a hymn titled, Not In Me. And it talks about all the things that can't make us right with God. And it, and it gets to the heart of this issue of repentance. It says, no list of sins I have done. And then listen to this. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. That's exactly right. It says in the second verse, No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hand, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by Him and He alone can give me rest. And that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. If you're here today and you're trusting in your own long-form prayers or recitations of the truth or your own works to try to deal with this sin and get you back in good graces with God, that's not going to happen. You must turn to the Lord obediently. And look to Him for help. Repentance is not earning your way back into God's good graces. It's trusting and submitting to the grace God has already made available to you. Another deficient view of repentance that I want you to watch out for is what, what you might say an unnecessary view of repentance. In other words, there are a lot of people who view repentance as an unnecessary part of the Christian life. Yeah, you got to repent and believe to be saved, but 
Repentance doesn't play a part in my ongoing Christian life. You say, well, I would never say that. Okay, well, sometimes it's framed like this. I don't really have to repent that often. Repentance is kind of for the big sins, and I don't commit to big sins. Well, if you don't repent of the small sins, you'll definitely be repenting of the big sins at some point. <laughs> Whatever the difference between a big sin and a small sin is. But so often we have this idea, well, I don't really need to worry about that. Or maybe we'll render repentance ineffective and unnecessary in our life, not by demeaning the need for repentance, but by excusing the sin in our life. Oh, you know what? I, I know that may not have been the right thing to do, but... Well, no, no, no. Let's go back to the objective truth of God's Word. Is it right or is it wrong? Let's try to figure that out. Before we start making excuses for it, let's find out what God thinks about it. But so often, we never get to the point where we're able to actually deal with sin and see victory over it because before we're ever willing to own it and repent of it, we excuse it away. We justify it. We rationalize it. Oh, this is the way I've always thought. Oh, this is the only way I know how to deal with it. If you're rationalizing that sin away, if you're excusing it, if you're diminishing it, you'll never get to the place where you can humbly repent and turn to the Lord for help. The quickest way to see victory over sin in our lives is to own it before the Lord. Completely. Completely. No caveats, no asterisks, no buts, or, well, you got to take this into consideration. We've got to own it. By the way, just as a side note, Oftentimes, it's easier for parents to own their own sin than it is for them to help their children do that. I'll tell you what. Little Johnny, little Susie, they did not sin because they had too much sugar. May not have helped. I mean, running around with a Twix bar in her hand all the time may not be a good idea. But they sin because they're a sinner. Okay? Uh, junior didn't talk back to mom because he didn't get enough sleep last night. May not have helped, put the kid to bed. But he was disrespectful because he's a sinner and he's sinned. And as hard as it is for us to confess our own sin or to help our children see their own sin and take responsibility for it, that's the first step towards genuine repentance. To own it. Just own it. Stop defending yourself before the Lord as if... He's going to be swayed on his view of sin based on your self-justification. We often render repentance unnecessary in our life just because we excuse away our sin. In fact, I wonder if we were to think through it, when's the last time that we can even remember repenting through specific sins? When's the last time that we can think through, boy, here's where I went to the Lord. I saw a sin in my life. I confessed that sin. I repented of it. And I started working through that repentance to move in the opposite direction away from that sin. That's what repentance looks like. And so I might say, well, there's some out there who think repentance is unnecessary. And you say, oh, I can't believe there are people out there like that. But then when we start to examine our own life, we say, wow, how often am I actually repenting of the sins that I see in my life? Another, another view of repentance that's frankly just not helpful is what we might call replacing repentance with rededication. Rededication. 
Uh, that's probably a part of many of your sp- spiritual heritage. Uh, it is mine, the, the constant call to rededicate your life to Christ. Now, let me be clear about something. Do I want you to dedicate your life to Christ? Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, I absolutely do. And that's part of what repentance is. But so often, the, the hard work of repentance in this view of rededication, the hard work of repentance, the lifelong battle with sin, is replaced with a one-time experience. I mean, how many times you see, okay, youth group's at camp, youth group goes to camp, kid walks the aisle at youth group, he's, he's weeping, he comes back, he joins the Bible study, and then a month later, you don't know where he's at. Repentance takes a little bit longer in our life than it takes to play just as I am. So, so, so many confused believers think, well, I rededicated my life to Christ. Why is it so hard now? Repentance is a lifelong battle. It's not a one-time experience. Repentance requires active, ongoing submission. It's not mystical passivity in the moment. Another common view of repentance that I think is deficient is really the opposite of repentance. And that is a view of of repentance that replaces it with relief. So often, we get into sin and the burden of the Spirit is upon us, and that does not feel good. There's, there's, there may be nothing better in this world to be able to lay your head down on your pillow at night with a clean conscience. And when the Lord takes that away from you, when the Lord burdens your conscience by His Spirit because of the sin that's in your life, if you're sensitive to that, it is excruciating. And oftentimes, we get in the midst of our sin, and all we want is relief. I just don't want to feel bad about it anymore. You notice how that's not repentance though, right? Repentance is, I don't want to sin anymore. This view of re- relief instead of repentance is, I don't want to feel bad about it anymore. And so what happens is, you seek relief from the pains of conviction through one of two ways. One, gratification. I'm feeling convicted over this, but I really want to do it. Man, this is a battle. I'm waging a battle, but you know what? If I just do it, then I won't feel bad. It'll feel great. And so you just succumb to that temptation. You respond in that sinful way, the way you always do, because man, it feels so good to get my pound of flesh. Or whatever. And so you've sought relief from this battle with conviction over sin, not through repentance and seeking the Lord, but through gratification. And of course, the problem with that is it doesn't last, does it? It comes back. And so what you have to do is you, you either have to at some point say, I'm going to fight it, or you he- have to he- keep gratifying that lust. And if you keep gratifying that lust, what happens? Well, ultimately, the conviction starts to lessen and die as your conscience is seared and defiled. Which really dovetails into the second way this, this view of repentance works and is some, sometimes you seek relief through gratification other times you seek relief by suppressing the truth. 
You know it's right. You know it's wrong. But you, you hide yourself from those truths. You don't want to be under the scrutiny of God's word because that only intensifies the conviction that you're feeling. I don't want to feel convicted. I want to feel comforted. So what do you do? You run away from the truth. Because when you're in the midst of sin, the truth doesn't comfort. The truth convicts. So these are just some of the ways that we might think poorly or wrongly about repentance. And, and what I would point out to you is beneath every one of these deficient lies about repentance, the real enemy of true repentance is pretty simple, isn't it? Here's the real enemy to repentance in your life. It's your own self-will and love for sin. That's it. You want to do what you want to do? And you love these sins that you're tempted with. That's where the battle is. And I know that's true of you because it's true of me and it's what I find in the Scriptures. We want to make provision for the flesh, not cut off any opportunity to gratify the flesh. We want that. We want to rationalize and excuse our sin rather than fully confess it and own our responsibility in it. We want that. We want to hide our sin, not get it out in the open so that it can be dealt with. The real battle for repentance is this. Our remaining sin does not want to give up control of our lives and we do not want to give up the sins that we cherish so dearly. If you're not careful, you'll end up living the Christian life desiring all the assurance and peace of being in Christ but at the same time, all the control for your own flesh and all the gratification of every desire that you have. But those two things never coexist. Which is why repentance is so important. See, the real problem with repentance is we don't really want to repent. <laughs> at least our remaining sin, that fleshly weakness, doesn't. But we must repent. We must understand that we have not repented until we've turned away from sin. And then if we repent and turn away from that sin and then come back to the sin, well, we may have repented, but we're not repenting now and we've got to get back to work on it. As I mentioned a moment ago, you cannot expect the benefits of sanctifying grace in other areas of your life if you won't repent in this one specific area. Sometimes we like to cordon off our life. Well, I struggle with sin over here, but over here, I, I am a mature man in Christ. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You can't sow seeds of sin in your heart in one area and expect to reap fruits of the Spirit in other areas. You must consistently and humbly deal with the reality of sin in your life just as God has prescribed to do so in His Word. Relying on His grace, submitting to His truth, trusting in Him. And even as we discuss this, you know, this kind of disciplined practice of pattern repentance, it ain't easy. It's hard to live a life of repentance. But that's where this passage in Lamentations chapter 2 is so helpful for us. Because many times, it's difficult for us to repent because we don't even know what that looks like. 
What does it mean to repent of this sin? Well, this passage helps us. It helps us see what repentance should look like in our lives, at least in principle form. You see, the same kind of repentance that was required from Jerusalem in this passage is necessary for us. This is the nature of repentance. In fact, in these verses, we see four characteristics of true repentance. Four characteristics of true repentance. And who knows, we might get through one of them today. (laughs) But let's at least jump into verse 17 before we go to the Lord's table, right? We see the first characteristic of true repentance in verse 17, where we see that true repentance is informed. True repentance is informed. What does that mean? It means that true biblical repentance is always a response to biblical truth. It's a response to the truth in our life. When God shines the perfectly pure light of His truth into our life through the Scriptures, repentance is then a response. When we see that what the Scriptures say is not consistent with what we're doing, thinking, and believing, that's when we leave behind our wrong thinking, acting, and believing and run to the Scriptures. In fact, all those deficient views of repentance that I mentioned to you before, and we could probably come up with more, all those wrong views of repentance, the only way that you can protect yourself from a faulty view of repentance is through the truth of Scripture. The Bible defines what we must repent from. It defines for us how to repent unto God. You cannot abandon the sin in your heart and pursue the Lord without the objective standard of God's Word. We need the truth to guide our repentance. In fact, in this way, the nature of repentance parallels the nature of faith. Faith has to understand the truth. So too, repentance has to understand the truth. The truth about sin. In other words, we need to be able to say, I see that the Bible forbids what I'm doing or thinking. In the light of the truth of God's Word, this is wrong. We have to understand that. But then also, we have to accept the truth about sin. Not only do I see, okay, the Bible says this is wrong, but we also need to be able to say, I confess that the Bible is right about my sin and idolatry. There are lots of people in the world, for instance, who who understand that the Bible condemns homosexuality as a sin. But there are not many people in the world who are willing to say, not only does the Bible teach that, but I accept that that's a true view. We must accept what the Bible says about it. And then, it doesn't stop there. True repentance not only understands and accepts the truth, it also submits to the truth. True repentance will yield to the implications of truth and the need for change. I understand it. I accept that it's true. And I'm going to submit my life to it. Perfectly? No. Faithfully? By the power of the Spirit? I hope so. Repentance has to be rooted in the objective truth of God's Word, not in subjective feelings and sensations that we have. Oh, pastor, I repented of this sin. Really? How'd you know it was sin? Oh, man, I just felt so bad about it. Okay. How do you know you repented? Well, like I said, I felt really bad about it. 
Well, how do you know that you're walking in the truth now? Well, I don't feel bad anymore that I've confessed it. You see how that's all based on how you're feeling in the moment? Maybe how could that conversation go better? I repented of the sin. How'd you know it was sin? I saw it in the scriptures. I, I, I informed myself of the scriptures and what I was doing was sin. Oh yeah, so okay, so that's how you know it was sin. Well, how do you know, uh, how, how do you know that you're, you're dealing with it and, and, and repenting? Well, I, I accepted what the truth says and I accepted what the truth says about how I need to walk instead of that. Wow, okay, well how do you know that's being effective in your life? Well, because here's the standard of truth and I'm submitting to that. You see how that's objective and based on the truth of God's Word? It's not subjective and based on just on our feelings. The worst unrepentant sinner apart from Christ can feel really guilty about certain things. doesn't mean they've dealt with it. And what I want you to notice in verse 17 is how the prophet's exhortation to repent is rooted in deep theological truth. I mean, the prophet, when these people needed to repent, the prophet went all the way to the bottom of the well, the deepest truths that he could find, and he based his call to repentance on these deep truths. For instance, the prophet points to the truth of God's sovereignty over the fall of Jerusalem. Verse 17 begins, The Lord has done what He purposed. What is that besides an affirmation of the absolute sovereignty of God? Why did Jerusalem fall? Why was the city destroyed? Why were the people punished? Why was there famine in the land? Why was there suffering? Why were the Babylonians victorious? Because the Lord purposed it. And whatever the Lord purposes to do, He does. prophet here is talking about God's sovereignty, His absolute authority and power to complete His rule over all creation. God's sovereignty gave Him the right and the power to punish Israel. He was not overstepping His bounds. Jerusalem fell because it was God's will. These events were ordained before the foundation of the world. And by the way, the fact that God was sovereign over it, it did not remove one bit Israel's culpability in it. The prophet doesn't say, well, God did what He purposed to do, so you're off the hook. He said, no, 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 no. You're responsible for your sin, and God did exactly what He purposed to do in punishing your sin. You say, well, what, how, how does... How does this truth about God's sovereignty, how does this propel us and inform our repentance? Well, when you understand, accept, and submit to the truth of God's sovereignty, guess what? There's no room left for self-will. Right? One of the problems of repentance is our own desire for our own autonomy, our own authority. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Guess who the only one who has that authority and right is? It's God. And He does so in perfect holiness. You can't get out of repentance. When you understand God's sovereignty, you can't get out of repentance by saying, well, man, I'm my own man. I'll do what I want to do. When you recognize God as the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe, there's nothing left to do except bow in submission to Him. And notice also the prophet not only points to the sovereignty of God, but also to the righteousness of God. 
the faithfulness even of God. That is to say, God's acting in accordance with His character. God's acting in accordance with what He says He's going to do. That's one of the amazing things about our God. Everything He says He's going to do, He does. You think about the correlation here. Everything He purposes to do, He does. Everything He says He's going to do, He does. Exactly the way He says it. That's what makes the, the Bible so valuable to us. It's never outdated because God is always faithful and righteous to His Word. And notice what it says. The Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His Word which He commanded long ago. And here the prophet is reminding us of God's righteousness. God's righteousness compelled Him to keep his word. Israel could not say, you know, we're really being treated unfairly in this whole deal. How could they? How could they? When, when God spelled out ages ago, this is exactly what will happen to you if you forsake me. And then through the prophets continued to warn the people and say, look, you have forsaken me, but if you'll repent and turn back to me, I'll receive you. I'll forgive you. Warning after warning, God provided. God warned the people of the dangers of sin and they refused to heed His warning. And in all this, notice, God did not break His promises or His word to Israel in one bit. He acted in accordance with His character and commands. In other words, He was righteous in the matter. He was righteous. And when you understand, accept, and submit to the truth of God's righteousness, guess what? There's no room for self-justification and excuses. You can't say, well, you know what? Actually, God, I'm righteous in this even though I sinned because these were my circumstances. When you understand God's perfect righteousness... What are we going to do? We're going to stand before the perfect righteous God and start making excuses for our sin as if that would work? Additionally, by implication, notice how the prophet speaks of the Lord's holiness in doing all of this. He not only did what he said he was going to do, but then it says in verse 17, he has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. You say, I don't see the word holiness there. Well, hang with me for a minute. I'll explain why I see holiness here. You know, God's holiness is his immutable purity. It's his total separation from anything that would defile his character. That idea of separation, it is vital for us to understand what holiness is. And what do we see in this passage? God's separation from Israel. They were His covenant people. Still are. But at this point, in this generation, what does it say? He is thrown down without pity. Language there, you could trace it through the book of Jeremiah, but that language there translated thrown down you go all the way back to Jeremiah 1.10. It, it's covenant language to talk about the Lord essentially evicting the covenant people from the covenant land. He was cutting off this generation from all the covenant benefits. 
God's holiness prevented him from remaining in covenant fellowship with sinful Israel. And it was their fault. In fact, it even says that he has made the enemies rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. The word there, might, could literally be translated the horns of your, your foes. It's speaking of the strength, their strength. And in verse 3 of this same chapter, it says that God cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. So the horn of Israel cut off, the horn of Israel's enemy exalted. It's a total reversal. Total reversal. And whose fault was it? Did God change in the whole matter? Did God's holiness ever vary or shift or change? It did not. They sinned. And as a result, they were separated from their covenant Lord. And this is helpful for us because when you understand the holiness of God, when you accept this truth and submit to this truth, there's no room for self-pity. When we're bearing the consequences for sinful decisions in our life, there's no room for self-pity. Which is good because self-pity is one of the worst, one of the worst responses a Christian can have. What do you have to be pitied about? If you're in Christ, then you'll never be thrown down without pity like Israel was in this generation. And yet so often our self-pity prevents us from repenting. Instead of saying, my sin is awful, my decision to sin was awful, and I've got to turn away from that, we say, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have done what I did, but oh, it's so hard for me. Yeah. And all this, verse 17, just notice. The prophet used the truth of God to compel Israel to repent. The prophet pointed the truth of God's sovereignty, the truth of God's righteousness, the truth of God's holiness, all as motivators to lead the people to repentance. One commentator put it this way. In light of this verse, he says, repentance surrenders to the reality of God's sovereignty over the situation and His righteousness in it. That's such an important attitude to have in repentance. To come before the truth and say, God, you're in control of these things. I don't like how it's going, but you know what? Your word says you're righteous, so you're righteous. And I turn to you. When we have this kind of humble, submitted faith in our life, all of a sudden, all the excuses and ways of avoiding repentance begin to evaporate, don't they? When we stand before the truth of God, repentance becomes a simple matter of faith and submission. And it's really not all that complicated. You've got to be willing to take the time to look at your own heart to say, here is where I'm sinning. Here's where my desires and my life and my actions differ from God. I've got to confess that to the Lord. I've got to own it and take responsibility. And I've got to ask for the Lord's grace to run away from that. When we surrender the truth of God, it will contradict the lust of our heart. But it will also prove to be the starting blocks for true repentance. True repentance is informed. 
that's based on the object of truth of God, not some inward sensations that we have. The Apostle Paul warns us of worldly repentance that leads to what? Death. It's a worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow. True repentance, though, responds to the truth of God with faith, submission, and obedience. In fact, I think we can put it this way. Truth is always what compels true repentance. When we allow the light of God's Word to shine in the darkest places of our hearts, it hurts. It hurts. But it only hurts because of our pride. God's doing a good work through that. And this is the starting place to true repentance. Next week we'll come back together and we'll see if we can't get through the rest of it and see the rest of what repentance looks like. But understand... The beginning place for all true repentance is to bring your life, to bring your heart under the authority and the clarity of God's Word. Will you pray with me? Lord, these are penetrating and convicting truths that You've confronted us with today. Lord, this is exactly what You were doing for your people in Lamentations chapter 2. Even in inspiring this book and, and compelling the prophet to write it under the inspiration of the Scripture, you were providing the truth that your people needed to repent. And so even as we begin to think about these things today, Lord, we pray that you would continue to help us see these truths that lead to repentance. Help us to bring our lives under the authority and the clarity of Scripture. Lord, help us to be honest about the excuses that we craft in order to avoid dealing with sin. And instead of avoiding dealing with sin, Lord, help us to understand the freeness and the fullness of Your grace that makes it possible for us to deal with sins. Lord, even now as we come before the Lord's table, as we prepare to take of the cup and eat of the bread. Lord, we recognize Your grace. We recognize the provision that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, what an amazing thing it is that by repentance and faith we can be made right with You and we can walk in newness of life with You. These aren't works that should earn us anything, and they don't. But Lord, You've promised to bless our humble faith in You and our persevering repentance towards You. So we pray even now that as we're convicted by these truths about repentance, that You would match that conviction with the comfort that comes from this reminder of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. So Lord, prepare hearts for this ordinance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.